For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. costume around it. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I'm here with Aaron Lammer and Max Linsky from Long Form. I was just Guys. giving some uh, Halloween costume advice. Yeah, man, we heard you. We heard you. <laughs> oh, you were already taping? Yeah, that's right. Oh, okay. You were actually espousing the benefits of spray adhesive, yeah. I think, in a more general it's also sense. Co- it's also cool if you just like us uh, sit in a small room, just spray it. <laughs> spray it in the air. <laughs> but... Uh, before we talk about who Max <laughs> this was going to be our uh, serious take on the, yeah. uh, on yeah, the this intro. This is the short one. So just a quick reminder to review the podcast in iTunes. If you listen to it on iTunes, we'd love to get some more reviews. We had some bad early reviews due to sound problems that have hopefully been resolved. So Five stars, lots of adjectives. That's what we're looking for. Max, who did you talk to this week? Uh, I talked to Eli Saslow. And he writes for the Washington Post. Uh, we talked about a bunch of stuff, including, I think, the saddest newspaper story I've ever read in my life. Um, and we also talked about what it's like to have Jeff Bezos as your new overlord. Uh, if you are trying to lord your new status over your friends, you might want to start an email newsletter with tiny letter from the good people at MailChimp. It's a simple, powerful way to get your message out. I think we have another sponsor. We do. Squarespace, our friends at Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. You can get a free trial and 10% off at squarespace.com by using the code LONGFORM8. And here is Max with Eli. Hey, Eli. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing just fine, man. Thanks for um, thanks for having me. We're we are thanks for taking the train. We are recording in uh, what I think has to be the most pro setup in the history of the long form podcast. We're at a legitimate recording studio at the Washington Post. Yep, feels feels pretty good. Although I think that says less about uh, how legit this setup is than it does about the previous places that you've recorded this thing. Because we true. did we did find a spitter in the trash can. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's you know, the, it's, not, you know, it's the kind of recording place. studio where you can dip. That's okay, fine. That's good. Yep, yep. Um, I don't think either of us will be doing it. No. I, w- I will be drinking this diet, Dr. Pepper. So well, you you need the caffeine. Advice. You are a uh, a new father, or you've been a father, but you are yep a uh, new father for the second time. So yeah, pretty, so you're working, pretty fun. You're working on like no sleep. Uh, yeah, working on minimal sleep. For I'm gonna sure. get, catch you off guard. You're gonna say something you shouldn't say. That won't be hard. That All won't right. be hard. If you're not gonna, if you're gonna say something you shouldn't <laughs> say, let's start right here. So, um, we're at the Washington Post. I walked into the lobby, and there was no like uh, giant Bezos head in the lobby. There's no like Jeff Bezos shrine. I haven't seen any right religious Bezos iconography <laughs> since I got here. Um, how's it? feel how do you feel about your new overlords i mean it's been weird for me because i've been uh my daughter our second daughter was born 
three days before the paper was sold. So like I, I vaguely heard in process that it had been sold while I was, I was, uh, we were, we were coming home from the hospital with her. Um, it's weird. I mean, you know, less, less because it will have any immediate effect on my job than just like the grams are, um, they're a part of this place. And I think a really unusual way. And Don in particular, who's, who's been running it for a long time is so personal, like with the writers of the paper. I mean, he, uh, He's just such a good dude. So so that part of it is a little bit heartbreaking. I mean, he's 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 sort of strange in his own ways and like a little bit um socially awkward, but he cares so much about about the paper and about the people who write for it. Um you know, he just likes to come down and like sit at people's desk and ask what they're working on and yeah. you always you always sort of felt like you had your back. So You've been here for a, a long scary. time. How when, when did you sort of like when did he start taking an interest in you? When did you when I mean, did you start getting the Graham treatment? The great thing about Don is like you don't you don't have to be anything special or be doing anything special to get the Graham treatment. I mean he just he knows everybody. I mean I, I had so I've been here for almost ten years and my first job here was I was writing about uh high school sports at like a far flung bureau of the post in, in Anne Arundel County. So Basically, like I was writing high school volleyball gamers over and over and over, and occasionally after... were you like were you uh, were you like giving those stories the Saslow treatment? Were you like <laughs> were you like writing the hell out of those stories? I, uh, Crazy maybe. finishes, turning in like three thousand word <laughs> game exactly. recaps. Yep, they were cutting a lot on the desk back then. <laughs> uh, but you know, occasionally after these like eight inch game stories, uh, like between Broadneck and Anne Arundel High School, you would get a little note in your mailbox at the post. With Don's like handwritten note on his stationery saying like, "Great reading about the Broadnet game last night. Like, love that lead. Keep it up." You know, wow. he, just, he reads everything. Uh, so the things that the notes were about changed over the years, but but the fact that he was like interested and and a super close reader of the paper never changed. And um, and he's also like he's just. We, we started like a small little, this is kind of neither here nor there, but we started a little like writing not-for-profit mentoring program um, with a couple schools in Southeast uh, at the paper. And Don is like, he's been so all in on that and, um, you know, basically keeps the program afloat with his own personal help. And, and uh, you know, he's, he's just a super generous guy. So I'll miss having him be around all the time. His rooting interest is, is genuinely in the post doing well. I mean, I, I, I think that yeah. came through in all the in, in all the stuff when the sale went down. The other thing that I, were, I guess people were more split was sort of the reaction to Bezos as a buyer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was a lot of sort of like typical journal press cynicism stuff. Yep. Um, but there was also some optimism, which you don't often find in that journal press, um, which I kind of agreed with like i I, you know this this is a tough nut to crack like this is a real uh this is a challenge yep and i like the idea that someone to whom money is no object and uh ideas are very valuable yep has decided to take an interest in it yeah and somebody who's not gonna have to like constantly show shareholders uh how how the company is doing and somebody who can hopefully say you know, we can invest in something for the long run, and if it if we're struggling because of it for a few years, that's okay. We can we can take some hits because I'm I'm not gonna have to show the world exactly what we're what we're losing all the time. Um, so yeah, I'm 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 hopeful about it. I mean, also, you know, I just have become probably all of us like, you know, and and you know, I still feel relatively new to to this whole 
industry, but even 10 years in, and especially like the 10 years that, that it's, that it's been in journalism, like you get, there's, there's always so much to feel defeated about, you know, and there's always just, just, uh, you know, the, it's, everything's changing and changing quickly. Um, but the truth is like, you know, I spent a lot of time kind of worrying about that and, and it can definitely stress you out. But, um, for me, it's like, I, I can't control any of that stuff. So basically what I always try to do is say, you know, what I can control is like the next story that I'm working on and, and try to make it as good as I can and try not to worry about the other shit. Cause otherwise it just, it just, then it, then it becomes a part of the work and that's, that's not good for anybody. I mean, the best thing I can do for the paper is to try to write every story as well as I can. Uh, I can't worry about the other stuff. Um, you know, I think there's every reason to be hopeful until we learn otherwise. Right. So um, that's kind of what it feels like right now. Put it. Um, this is the only place you've ever worked. This is. Yep. I I uh, I I've inter- I interned at the Star Ledger in New Jersey and at the Buffalo News. Um, so I wrote for those places. And now I, I've got a, a fun kind of side thing where I do some long stories for ESPN the magazine. Um, but uh, yeah, this is this is basically the only place I've ever worked. So how did you go from writing, you know, high school volleyball stories to doing like the Sunday takeouts? What's the- I'm not really sure. Um, I, you know, basically I knew when I got here, um, I always kind of knew the, the type of journalism I wanted to try to do. Um, you know, did you I, always I'm know not, you wanted to be a journalist? No, uh, not really. I mean, I, I went, um, I grew up in Denver. I went to Syracuse, uh, because I thought I was kind of interested in journalism, but mostly like the financial aid was really good. Um, my dad is a middle school English teacher, so I'd been rewritten a lot uh, like in in middle school and high school. And my my mom teaches special ed in, in elementary school. Um, so, I, you know, I was always way better at like English than I was at math and science. Um, and yeah, I knew I knew that probably like trying to do some kind of writing thing. But when I went to Syracuse, I was a broadcast major, which is like so say Syracuse takes like 3,000 incoming freshmen every year, say like 1,500 of them are guys, like 1,452 are like sports broadcast majors when they start <laughs> their freshman year. Uh, so, uh, which is, man, what a rough road to hoe that is. So I, I figured out pretty quickly that that was not what I wanted to do. Um, and then I started writing for the school paper, I was, I was, which is a really good school paper, and I was lucky that I was there at a time when there were a lot of other people who were, who were into it and who kind of knew what they were doing, um, or at least were interested in figuring out like how to do it. Um, so, yeah, then I kind of knew that that was what I wanted to do. And even, even at Syracuse, like towards the end, I started to figure out that what I really liked was writing sort of the longer, more in-depth stuff. Um, and... You know, even though my first job here was like the high school volleyball far flung bureau, like I, I would always just sort of aside from that job, I would try to write um, like one story every month or two. There would be like a longer story about something different and just try to push push them to get it in the paper somehow. Um, was it that like newspaper narrative style that was appealing to you? Or I feel like there is a difference between writing these kinds of stories for magazines and writing them for newspapers. There, there's some stylistic differences. Were newspapers, was that newspaper style more appealing? I don't think I knew. I, I don't, I don't think I really knew the difference. And I think probably in, in then, I mean, do you think def- there's a difference? definitely I do now. Yeah. And I what agree. do you think the difference is? I, I mean, I think that, um, you know, and I don't know if it's newspaper style versus magazine style, but, but I definitely feel like my, the, the, the style that I, um, you know, if 
if I can even say I've developed a style. The the way I like to write is is to sort of keep myself pretty far out of the story and and have uh, you know ha- have the the characters of the story come first. The truth is like it's not um, even saying that there's a narrative newspaper writing style is uh, maybe like an over generous claim at this point because there's not a ton of narrative newspaper writing. Um, so but but uh, what I usually try to do is is sort of you know, present a story through through scene and dialogue with the characters at the center of it, and and of course, like when you're writing a story, you're you're always at the center because you're deciding everything about it. But um, you know, I I I in some ways try to keep myself at some remove from a reader reading the piece, and and you know, magazine narratives can be a little bit different than that. They sometimes feel more more written, uh, if that makes sense. Um, sometimes I feel like there's uh, you know, there's 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 a little bit more of a writer's imprint. Um. You know, on 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 some on some aspects of the piece. Do you feel less comfortable with that stuff when you're doing it for ESPN? No, I don't. Um, but I but to be totally honest, it's, it's not. Uh, I I believe in 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 the newspaper model more, um, and it's the one that I feel more comfortable with. I mean, I think uh, I think if you don't have the goods on a story, then um, needing to sort of uh, put a little bit more of yourself in it makes sense. Um, to me, I think if you if if you have a story, uh, then, um, you know, I, I want people to be walking away from, from a story I've written, uh, thinking about the things that have happened in the story, um, more than they would be thinking about necessarily the way it was told or, um, you know, and that's, that sounds way more humble than I am. I I want them to think that it's well-written, uh, and I want them to think I did a good job, but, but the truth is I want, I want the, the story and the characters to come first. Um, and, Sometimes I feel like when I when I am writing the other way, um, to me sometimes it feels like trying to overwrite something, and it's because I don't I don't have it. Uh, you know, I, I haven't I haven't gotten it there yet. There there are some magazine writers who I uh, I read and totally admire who who can do both in in their best. You know, whether it's like Junod Falling Man or you know right. tons tons of those where where you know they. Uh, People like that can can their writing can elevate a story that already is great. Um, I I, I don't uh, I don't have those moves yet. Um, but you know I think that's that's kind of the difference. Are you in a position at the post where you can, like in effect, kill a story if you don't have the goods? Right. Yeah. It can't always be that good. Right. Sometimes they don't work out. Um. You know. Are, are or, you in a spot where you can kill them? Yeah, I'm in a spot where I can kill him. But more than that, I'm in a spot where uh, I have the luxury of taking a luxury that's rare here of taking the time to make sure that I get him right. And and usually that's that's time spent not on the back end, um, but time that's spent on the front end, making sure that when I when I know the story I want to go after, um, you know, so much of reporting is really pre-reporting and figuring out you know, okay, here's here's this general big idea I have for a story. Uh, where where is the place? that it makes sense to tell that story who who are the characters what's the timing um you know figuring all that stuff out sometimes that takes a week two weeks uh and and that's time that you know not very many people in newspapers have the luxury of of having and i do i mean it's it's um so let's let's use i'm gonna keep talking about this for a second so let's let's use uh life of a salesman as an example so give us like the quick preamble for people who maybe haven't read that story okay cool so that that uh in some ways, like a reporter's worst nightmare a little bit. The editors of the paper decided like we needed to do a really big story uh, about sort of like the state of the American dream, which even just saying that out loud sounds like 
holy shit. Yeah. Really, what, ha- really... what happens when like, <laughs> right, you get exactly. that call? Right. Uh, not only does that sound like horrifically corny, but but what? You know, uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, I uh, kind of bucked at it for a little while, but then just uh, sort of tried to figure out, you know, I think I knew just because it's the way I feel comfortable telling stories usually that, that I wanted to, to try to tell a little bit of like a multi-generational story of, of one family and I wanted the person in it to, um, you know, I wanted to be with them long enough to see sort of the the slow diminishment of, of what they were hoping for in some ways. Um, but I didn't know what business. I didn't know, you know, the, the notion of a salesman came pretty quickly because it was like, you know, it's, it's, it's such like a, uh, 1950s iconic american dream america thing um and also like the person doing the person selling something has to believe in it um, or at least fool themselves into believing in it so anyway then i decided um that i i really wanted to write about a pool salesman because a swimming pool again was just you know it's just it's such like uh it's it's kind of a new money uh american dream thing so um, and basically, I, I wanted to set up the story so I didn't have to say American Dream in the story because then everybody would just stop reading. Although I think in the end, I, I probably one. did. <laughs> um, so then I, I I wanted it to be somewhere relatively close to D.C. because uh, I didn't want to spend the whole summer gone. Um, so I spent, you know, I spent probably a week learning about swimming pool salesmen in the greater DC area. And I spent full days with four swimming pool salesmen and just sort of getting to know their, their offices, their lives there. And because all of those, you know, three out of those four, if I'd done those stories, they would have been misses. Um, but uh, you know, I, I just because sur- the characters, because the there? characters weren't there or because the companies were too big or the failures weren't intimate enough. Or, How do you like, uh, when you're like speed dating with characters for a story, which is a you, lot of what it is, how do yeah. you like let them down? You're like, uh, sorry, I mean... sir, like you're you're a very nice person. Uh, this isn't gonna work out though, right? Well, you're, I, guess um, I... I don't know how to say this. You're uh, boring. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't. You know... <laughs> uh, I don't like you. <laughs> I'm gonna go to the other swimming pool company. Uh, the truth is, to some of them, it's probably a relief because um, if they knew the amount of time I spent with poor Frank Ferretti, uh, <laughs> they would probably be very glad not not to have me tagging around all summer. Um, but, you know, sometimes it, it, it's not like any of those days are ever wasted because every time I was learning more about the industry that I was going to be writing about, I was sort of anchoring myself more in the story. Um, and and some of that stuff, learning about the other companies, ended up being useful in the story. So, I guess one way I do it is is by initially when I when I made those approaches, I wasn't calling all four of those people and saying, "I might want to spend the whole summer writing intimately about your life." I was saying, you know, "Hey, I'm really trying to learn about the pool business. Sort of what's going on with the pool business. Uh, can I come spend a day?" And so, uh, you know, I, there wasn't too much letting down that had yeah. to be done. Sometimes there's more, um, but. Uh, yeah, so one of those four days was with was with Frank. This character immediately felt right because it was, you know, it was a, it was a business that had been in the family that had been doing better, uh, that now was doing worse. His dad, who'd run the company, was dying. Um, he was sort of like seeing his own ambitions for the company get smaller, 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 but still kind of holding on. Um, was, was he upfront with you about? that situation early no, on it took a long time and it and it Cause, i mean i feel like for a salesman like the last thing you want to do a guy, guy from the post shows up you don't want to be like uh, right eh, it's in the crapper <laughs> yeah i mean that's that story like i'm proud of the end product but uh 
many times in the process that story was a nightmare because he was uh he was hesitant to do it so it took it it took uh you know it took a week of him thinking about it um me explaining again and again what i wanted to do and why i wanted to do it um before he he sort of decided he wanted to do it and then there were many other characters in the story who at, at some points i thought would be big characters in the story um his brother who had lived in like a, a mansion near the beach and um his life had changed in all these really symbolic ways who just they 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 were like half in and then they were all out um and uh you know so so there were there were a lot of like frustrations with that because for frank it was you know he was uh i'm sure part of him was self-aware enough to know that like holy shit this thing this this company is crumbling um but he also had to be such an optimistic guy to do his job every day that that he was still saying 100 pools 100 pools this summer um and and only after you know going out on a dozen sales calls with him did did i begin to get sort of the real thing and that's that's the other thing about having stories that don't uh that don't miss mostly it's just they take time like like the if i'd gone on two sales calls with frank i I never would have gotten the real sense of what a sales call was like but you know finally like people get comfortable and and you get to glimpse some more real things as the days go on whether with that story or you know any story really i feel like the 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 second day is always better than the first and that rule kind of holds true the more days you're there Hey, I'm going to uh, pause things here for a second and tell you a little bit about our sponsor this week. It's our friends at Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, you can go to squarespace.com and use the offer code LONGFORM8. Uh, I've been using Squarespace for the last couple of weeks. It really is as simple as they say. Um, They have all these templates. Well, not too many, but just enough they're all clean and simple and pretty and minimalist and exactly what you're looking for. Even better, they work on every screen. You don't have to do anything to get it to work on your smartphone or your tablet or your phablet or whatever else. It all works. It works out of the box. If you have any problems, they've got great customer service, but you probably won't. It's all just $8 a month, plus you get 10% off with that code, and you get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Go check it out. Squarespace.com. Use the code LONGFORM8. Uh, thanks very much for supporting long form and, uh, okay. Time to get back to Eli. Is that how most of your stories come about? Like, I feel like the post is in this interesting place where it, you know, it's both sort of a national newspaper and less so than it maybe once was. That story was a national story, but it was also in your backyard. Sure. Are a lot of the stories that you're being assigned are those things coming down that are like, let's try and let's try and sum up the American dream. Let's try and do something. <laughs> Luckily, not too often, but it happens. I mean, there are definitely sort of. Uh, I'm not assigned stories too often, but sometimes what I am tasked with is sort of concepts. Um, and right. and uh, yeah, I mean, I guess what I'm talking about. So you're like a, you're like a, assigned an idea, right? Theme. Yeah, and that's that's uh, you know I, I would say more than half of my stories are not that way. They're 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 at least I'm the one who's coming up with the concept and, but almost all the stories, uh, it might be just a weird method of doing things. But, but for me, oftentimes reporting begins as like a funnel where, where you sort of have this, 
you know, you have this idea or this concept and, and you're kind of drilling down on exactly the, the place and the way to do it. Um, and, and you're doing it in a way that you make sure is, is, uh, is fair and, and representative of what, of what you're writing about. But often what I'm doing for the post is taking big issues because that's what we want to write about and making them, uh, personal or intimate. And so that, that usually starts with, not with the person, um, but with the big issue and like, how can I tell this story in a narrative way? How did you find the last food stamp story, which was about a summer program in where exactly was it? It was in uh, rural Tennessee, Tennessee, kind of like northeast Tennessee. So that was similar in that um, I knew that I that that I, you know, the place where uh, food stuff has changed the most is like childhood food insecurity has gone up more than anywhere else. Um, We spend more money on it uh, than than basically anything else um, when you factor in the way food stamp money spent and stuff like that. Um, so I knew I wanted to write about, about kids and I, I, and sort of how this problem was exploding and some of these new solutions to fix it. I mean, it's always better when you're writing a story about something new. So uh, I was looking for something that people were doing that was new. Um, I thought about doing a bunch of different stuff. Like I, I, Again, that was a case where, say, I probably spent three days um, calling around and meeting people and learning about, like, how, how are people addressing this problem? Basically, the problem being that, you know, we've – the country has dealt with, like, childhood food insecurity by spending – by turning, like, school cafeterias into these huge all-day lunch kitchens, basically. Um, and then during the summer, like, there's this huge gap where families are used to having their kids fed like three meals a day now at school. And during the summer they have nothing and it's a big problem. So I, I was writing about that problem. So I, I wanted to, to learn as much as I could about the different ways that people were trying to solve that summer issue. So, you know, some places they open the schools year round now and kids go to the cafeteria at school. Um, some, some places, you know, do, uh, do feeding kitchen, some places deliver meals, just, just door to door to kids. Um, and then, you know, one other thing that happens that's starting to happen is that places turn their school buses into these sort of bread trucks to, to take meals out. Um, and when I heard about that one, it was just it's pretty obviously appealing because it's like a very concrete uh, kind of thing. I mean, a, a bus that just is turning into a, a, a lunch truck and going out into the hills of rural Tennessee feels like almost uh, like... Uh, it's such a, a desperate image. Um, desperate, so, but also like uh, practical in a way with those kind of massive issues. I feel like you don't read about or see about or think about very much. It's like, right. you know, and that, uh, that was a thing you did in that story over and over again was like keep coming back to numbers, like right. number of kids fed, number of miles driven, like right. number of ounces of carrots, you yep, know, totally. like because uh, at the, you know, the way the way that feeding people works at a federal level is it's all numbers and it's huge massive numbers you know i mean and it's uh every single person who's feeding one of those meals and getting reimbursed by the government for it is is sending those numbers exactly for every meal they serve so yeah i mean and then you know just as a so you do all that work to to report to the right spot and then you just go and you get on the bus and you know for the first for 2 days i rode the bus having no idea like if I was going to write about a family, what family I was going to write about, but just being on the bus, like allowed me to begin meeting characters and families that way. And, and that's sort of a different part of auditioning characters a little bit, I guess. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, that's, 
the more worthwhile part of reporting sometimes or, or just the part that people talk about less is is the the figuring out that it's the bus that you want to get on um the more fun part and and probably the more natural part to a lot of us is then you, know, you get on the bus and you get to watch and that part's just fun when you're doing that when you're like on the bus and you're auditioning characters and you're trying to figure out whether this is going to be the thing that you do are you like um super outgoing you know it's it's different uh I, on the first day reporting places, you almost always are forced to be super outgoing. Like you're, you're, because that's what people expect you to be. And, and, um, sometimes <laughs> you don't want to be like that creepy dude right, on the bus exactly. not saying anything. Sometimes to make people comfortable, you, you sort of have to play that role. Like, uh, you know, on, on other stories, uh, recently, like, you know, sometimes you, even, even if you don't want to be running tape and asking questions like a reporter if people expect you to do that at first it helps it helps make them more comfortable um and and it it just uh it, it helps you move into a more comfortable situation right i mean you're also writing a lot about people who are not often written about right and i feel like uh pulling out like a tape recorder pulling out a notebook also is helpful to be like i'm a here's, reporter right, here's i'm a reporter I, exactly. like we're not friends this is what i'm doing yeah. right totally so you know and always I have my notebook out uh, people just get used to it but it, but it is um, so at first I'm outgoing I'm, I'm explaining to people what I'm doing uh, but hopefully like you get into a situation where then you people are so used to you being on the bus that uh, instead of always wanting to talk to you or or expecting you to talk to them they begin to talk to each other and and you know that's when when it begins to feel like you're watching something a little bit more real and and something that's a little bit less sort of like a, a scene that you're a part of Um if that makes sense. Totally, yeah. You're in a situation where you're getting to, you're getting like this incredible luxury of time, man. Yep. You're getting to, to come up with, you know, big, big, big issues and drill way down and try people out and go run down possible stories and pull back and audition boring pool salesmen. Totally. Like, we're, we are in the post newsroom right now. There are, tons of reporters out on that floor like um are people jealous it's like a good gig you got man it is a good gig um i mean it it uh i don't know i i i, I hope people aren't too jealous um but it, it's also like i think it's a real balance uh and and it's a balance that i sometimes struggle with like how often to uh you know there's some there there are some people who can write three stories a year and that might be worth it for for a place because the stories are so good and um, for me if i was only writing that frequently i think i would i would put so much pressure on myself to have those stories be perfect that it would be it's just it, the anxiety would not be super fun so uh i guess what i try to usually do is have a rhythm where you know i, I might only have one sort of of those bigger stories every six weeks um or so uh a month whatever um but sometimes in between like another part of my job is like you know i'll go do sort of the quick hit narratives if something happens like um you know when when newtown happened in december like i'll you know i'll get on a train and i'll go do three sort of daily kind of kind of narrative stories partly like that's really helpful to keep those muscles fresh um it also is just you know it's good to be reminded every once in a while that you work in a newspaper. It comes right. out every day, not not just on like the every five Sundays That's when you write good, a story. Right. It's also good to remind people that you work good at the newspaper. Good to remind your bosses. Yeah, exactly. You just mentioned the uh, story that you wrote about Newtown. Um, I have a, a confession to make, which is that another editor on Longform uh, read that and posted it before I had had a chance to see it 
And I got and she emailed me and said, um, this is the most devastating thing I can remember reading. So that was her email. Um, and it was already on the site. And uh, I just couldn't bring myself to read it. And so I, you know, um, I knew I was coming down here and I emailed you a couple of weeks ago and was really excited to talk to you and stuff. And, um, and I went back and read all of the stuff that I already read of yours and all this ESPN stuff and like Ramil Robinson and all this old stuff. And, uh, and I still couldn't, um, uh, bring myself to read that story. And I was like, uh, I was with some friends last night and told them I was, I was coming down today and was going to talk to you. And, uh, and they were all like, man, that Newtown story. <laughs> And I was like, yeah, yeah, because I didn't want to, like, admit that I hadn't read it, you know? Um, and then, Eli, man, I, I, uh, I read that story on the train. I read that story, like, like uh, I read that story twice in the last, literally, like, I read that story twice in the last two hours. Um, I, I, don't, I honestly don't even know really what to say about it. Um, I have like a like a pit in my stomach still, um, and I, I I don't know I I haven't read anything that's uh, made me I haven't read anything that's made me that sad in a long time maybe ever. Thanks, um, I think. Uh, no, seriously, thanks. I mean, but, that's uh, I I appreciate you reading it because it's not. I've heard that from a lot of people that it it's a story that they set aside for a while or or you know some people won't ever read it just because um they've heard that it's so sad or because just the topic is so damn sad uh but um yeah it was it was also uh you know it was unlike anything else that I've worked on and that it just kind of like the emotions of it sometimes just got got on top of me and kind of like rolled me a little bit and and uh I took two trips there which was good because it sort of um you know it it was it was good to be there and then to step away and and breathe a little bit and also let the bardens uh kind of breathe a little bit and then I went back um I want to just stop you real quick and just make sure that uh anyone who's listening who hasn't read the story it's about uh uh, a family who lost their seven-year-old son yeah. at Sandy Hook. Yep. Uh, uh, Daniel Barton was <clears throat> was the kid's name. Um, and, you know, it really... And it was a couple of months after the shooting. Yeah, even more. Four or five. Yeah, five five months probably. I mean, and that story, it was a really simple story idea um, because it was basically... So I'd, I'd been to Newtown the first four days after the shooting. It was It was overwhelmingly sad, but in a much different way because it was like the mass of the tragedy was was overwhelming uh and horrific but but it it uh the town was so overrun and um everybody was was so you know it was shock it wasn't like an intimate grief um and certainly like nobody who was there writing at that point was was really getting to anything that felt um that felt real you know it, it was it, you you were you were doing the best you could to write about like this massive thing um and uh you know, I, I, even when I was there, I kind of knew that I would want to maybe try to come back and, and do something more personal. And then, you know, watching these families sort of go around like, like kind of show ponies and, and, um, and lobby, uh, show ponies isn't right because they want to be doing it because they, they don't know what else to do. Um, but, and then watching that stuff not work out 
uh, you know, and knowing that they were going back to this, to just the smallness of it. I mean, that's, that's the thing that I still can't really get my head around is how being there that first time it felt like, like, what isn't this going to change? And, and it was just, uh, it was, it was so big. And, and, um, then to be with them five months later as they're like enduring these moment of silence at the Delaware state Senate for, for bills that don't really do much, uh, for them. Um, you know, it's just, it, it had gotten so small that it felt like the right time to go write about it. Um, so that was another case of like, there are about six families who lobby. Uh, I spent a couple of days just watching tape of every interview any of those families had done to sort of get, get a little bit of a feel for them. Um, and uh, there were two that, that sort of stood out to me um, and the Bardens were, were one of them. And you know, it, it took a while also for them to decide that they wanted to, to do it. What's your approach? I mean, part of the part of the subtext of that story was that they are was the subtext. Part of the what that story was about was all these sort of myriad ways that they're trying to do something, trying to respond, trying to have some impact, and and it starts with them working on a Mother's Day card, which is the latest in this long string of things some of which feel um, uh, exploitative. Yeah. Uh, how do you come to them and sort of make, make your pitch? How do, you, how do you frame that? And then also, is there a part of you when you're having that conversation, when you're thinking about that story, that's like, uh, am I doing the same thing? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's... Uh, I, that The second part of that question, for sure, is something I, I always... Uh, struggle with a little bit like it's just it's a it's a really interesting and unusual relationship to be with somebody as a reporter whether it's it's with the Bardens or whether it's it's you know being on a on a bus all day in Tennessee with a bunch of kids who don't have enough to eat and then you know at 10 o'clock when the reporting day is over going back to the hotel and getting room service I mean it's just there's there's sort of a a contrast sometimes in what we do that just just feels a little bit shitty and I, I think what I always try to uh, tell myself and, and, you know, of course, hopefully like if, if we're writing stories honestly and, and, um, and, and illuminating something, then, then that serves the greater good in some, some abstract way we hope. But, but yeah, it's always, that's always on my mind. Um, with the Bardens with making the approach, uh, you know, I think usually for me, the best approach that works is just a really, a really sort of upfront one where it's, um, I, I, I think people, people, when they're written about, they, they want to know that, um, they want to know that it's being done right too. And, and I explained to them that I, I was going to be writing about Daniel, but, but really what I wanted to write about was them and their family. And, um, I didn't want to just, just do a, another story. I, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to stay with them for long enough and be with them for long enough to, to do justice to sort of this moment in their life. The, the one kind of um, other access advantage, I, I guess, that I had with the Bardens is that they, their whole hope in this thing is that, like, you know, maybe somehow if people can, can feel what they're going through for even, like, even fractionally for a millisecond, it, it will make them think about the way that, that the gun culture in the country works. And and that's what they want. So they want people to understand what they're going through. Uh, I was saying that I, you know, as as 
honestly as possible, good and bad, uh, wanted to write about what they were going through. Um, and it takes so much courage for people to, to say yes to something like that. So I'm, I'm always incredibly uh, grateful and, and a little bit surprised by how willing people are sometimes to open up their lives. There are, um, there are so many moments in that story, uh, both really small details uh, and, and sort of larger moments like when they're on the floor in Delaware um, that are just so brutal, man. There's, and there's no, there's like, there's no silver lining. Like there's no. Okay. Hold on. (laughs) Okay, this uh, might sound a little different because Eli and I were just uh, unceremoniously kicked out of the nicest place that the Longform podcast has ever been recorded. You can into, tell I have some serious sway around here. Yeah, into, uh, <laughs> you know, still very nice. We're in the Washington Post library, but we're back on the uh, on the old microphones and it might sound a little different. Uh, so anyway. We were also um, interrupted. Uh, maybe maybe that was a good thing because I think I was like about to start crying. <laughs> um, I'm glad we didn't have the first podcast cry. Yeah, first podcast cry. But um, we were talking about about your Newtown story uh, about the the family who lost their seven year old, and what I was saying was that over and over again in the story, there are these big moments and there are these small moments and there are these, these uh, small, tiny details, you know, putting gummy vitamins in the bottom of his uh, smoothies. But it's just, it's just never okay. Like they, like there's no, there's no, like there's no break from it. There's like no, there's no respite from it. There's no like chance to take a breath or chance to laugh or anything. It's like, there's, it's, it's never okay. Right. What was it like to write Eli? I mean, like how, uh, how did it affect you to spend all that time with those folks? It was, um, yeah, it was really hard, but, but I, I feel, uh, yeah, I feel, I feel guilty even, even saying that, or I feel like it's not really my place to complain about it being hard for me to write because, I wrote the story and then I got to leave it. And even when I was writing the story, I was only experiencing what they were experiencing in like a super fractional way. So, you know, they, the hard part was that it was a story where you're right. There's no, there are no breaks. There's no, uh, it is, it is this relentless sort of bottomless pain, uh, and I, I struggled with that because that, that's a hard story to write. Just, it's hard to, you know, you want people to move through a story and, and it's hard it's it's hard when a story is all uh, a story can only have so many crushing moments. Otherwise, they just all wash out. And um, so that that was really hard. But but the other truth is it's it is what it is. Like it's it's uh, it's an impossibly heartbreaking situation. And uh, making the story anything other than relentlessly heartbreaking would have would have been doing an injustice to what they're dealing with. So it was it was this hard thing in terms of thinking about structure and and um pacing to to at least try to write it in a way that was um that people could get through and i still think that there there are some who who didn't and won't just because the thing's too too sad um but it was it was uh it was really you know it was it, it was it was hard to 
be there. Um, they they were incredibly gracious. And yeah, how much time did you spend? So I went, I took two trips, and each time I was there for most of a week. So, uh, you know, and my youngest brother got married the weekend in between the two weeks I was there, which really? was actually great because it was like this huge burst of like joy and uh, fun stuff, um, which was just kind of, I think, good for me in that in that gap. Um, but uh, I was there, you know, I would go, I got a I got a hotel. Sometimes people ask like, if, did you stay with them? Um, or do you stay with people on stories like that? And I never do. It just, it feels like, it feels like being, being with somebody as like a house guest is a very different role uh, than being there as a journalist. But I do their, their eldest surviving son woke up for school every morning about six. And I would, I would get there at six when he came downstairs and, I would be there uh, until they all went to bed in the same room. Uh, you know, I'd walk up, walk up to the room with them sometimes. Um, you know, on on the first day, that's super awkward. Or, or it's like, uh, you know, it's it was one of those situations where the first two hours, I sat and I asked them questions because that's kind of what they expected, and um, that was what they knew how to do. The the other stuff, you know is stranger just having a guy sit around your house and kind of sometimes ask questions, but sometimes just watch. Um, well, particularly in that situation, I, uh, I feel like it must've been really strange to have a fifth person in their house. I'm sure. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm sure it was really strange to have a fifth person in their house. Um, and I, I'm sure that it, you know, it, it, uh, they all feel so vulnerable in so many ways for very good reason that I know that for their daughter, Natalie, it was, uh, it was probably just, just a little bit scary to have somebody else in the house. And I know that's something that they talked about a lot as a family before agreeing to do it. And that I was always very, very cognizant of when I was there. Um, you know, our, our photographer, the only thing that they didn't feel comfortable with in the story after I left a photographer went up there and she really wanted to, um, to, to go up with them to their room and take a picture of all of them getting ready for bed. And, you know, cause it was, it felt very symbolic to the photographer, rightfully so that they, that they now all sleep in this, in this one room. Um, and they thought that that would be fine. But, uh, but Natalie, their daughter sort of freaked out. And I think rightfully so just feeling like, you know, having a, having That's a like camera going off in the room, you know, it just, it, uh, it was scary to her. Did um, you, did you like see them getting ready for bed in that room? I would watch them. I mean, I saw the room and I, I, when they all went up to the room to go to bed, I would leave. Um, yeah. so I, I never was like sort of standing by the doorway watching them change into their pajamas. Um, but I, I, you know, it's, it's those days have a very interesting rhythm. The first one for me is always by far the most exhausting because you're, you're still getting to know people. You're still kind of getting their trust. Um, and part of it is just like, of course you're, you're there as a journalist all the time, but you're, you're, you're also like, yourself and if they're asking questions about you you're you're talking about it i mean the first the first night that i was there they all wanted to go take me to this awesome ice cream place that's just like a it's like a uh a, a uh farm where uh, they make ice cream out of the cow's milk uh, and it was excellent but you know just riding there with them in the van and like eating ice cream and hanging out i mean just uh i'm pretty i'm pretty casual as a i, I don't script interview questions or you know I, and, and being myself usually is the thing that works best in those situations. Um, so by, by the second day, they were more comfortable. And by the third day, even more comfortable. And, and coming back for the second to, to come a second time, I got way, you know, there were, there were many scenes in the story that occurred on that trip. And that probably 
I wouldn't have been able to sort of be there for or understand in the same ways if if it had been the first trip I was there. Let's talk just a little bit more about like actual like uh, reporting technique stuff. So you were there for two weeks. Uh, you're just using like just sitting there with a notebook. Yep, sitting there with a notebook constantly. And, and you're there at six a.m. and you're there until they go to bed. You got nothing else to do. No, and there. I mean, sometimes it it's. I think it's helpful to give people a little bit of air. Their house. This is getting really insidery, but it it was just sort of pretty far out of town. So there was no. It's not like there was a coffee shop two minutes away where I could be like, "Hey guys, I want to go grab a coffee." Like I'll, I'll be back in a couple hours. Um, but what they did have was they had a room in their house where like all this stuff that came in the mail uh, for Daniel, all this like weird stuff um, that that happens uh, in a tragedy like this, they just sort of stored it in this room and they, they never went in there. They couldn't really bear to, um, but they felt comfortable with me going in there and understood that me being in there and looking through some of this, this stuff was helpful. So sometimes when, you know, when I could just sense that um, it was time for me to walk away for a little while, uh, I would go into that room and I would sort of sift through some of the mail that came in and, and, um, you know, give, give a little space by doing that. But yeah, I mean, I would, I would, I would come and I would stay with them until they went to bed. I mean, and you know, that's, uh, there's one scene in the story in a diner where they go for, for breakfast where this mother of another kid, uh, who, who had been a classmate of Daniel's, um, the previous year and, and who had survived by hiding in another bathroom during the attack, they happened to come into this diner for breakfast and, and for his birthday, breakfast. for his birthday breakfast, which was this totally the most crushing reporting moment. You know, it's, it's, uh, sitting in that diner with them, um, while that was happening was, uh, I mean, those are the moments that you, that you know are important and that you work for, but they're also like, you know, that, that was, I hope I don't have another like sort of 10 minutes of reporting. That's, uh, that is just as just, just watching that heartbreak. Um, uh, you know, just, just brutal. Cause it's like, I'm, uh, the good news is I'm totally inconsequential to them in that moment. They're, they're, they have way bigger fish to fry and they're thinking about, about things way beyond me being there with them. Um, but just sort of, I'm kind of trying to disappear into that moment. I, I don't, I don't want to breathe loudly cause I don't want to, you know, I don't deserve to change the air in that, in that moment. So it's, it's like just kind of sitting there and, and watching that play out. Um, uh, yeah, that was, that was, that was the hardest moment probably of reporting the piece. And, uh, you know, a lot of people's reaction to that is like, that is so, uh, it's so amazing that that happened while you were there with them. And that's true. Um, but it's also true that, that there were seven other times that I went to meals with them where that didn't happen. And, and that's, that's why it's sort of, uh, you just, there's, there's nothing that makes up for being there and just for, 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 for watching. And, uh, you know, when they, when they went out to run errands, like, sometimes those errands were like their, their other son was in a concert for orchestra and they had to go buy him a white dress shirt. And they probably went to five stores looking for a white dress shirt. And, and every time I was tempted to be like, I really do not want to go to another store for a white dress shirt, but you just never know when something's going to happen. So, uh, you know, if you're writing about people's, people's lives, um, I think being there for as much time to see as much as you can is, is always pretty worthwhile writing that story was also super emotionally exhausting. Yeah. Did you, were you writing it while you were up there? How does that work? Not really. I mean, I, I always sort of had a sense that, um, 
that probably like I, I wanted to have two scenes in the story in Delaware. Um, I knew I didn't want more than that because I didn't want it to feel like it was just the story about them making this one trip. But but I knew that the trip was important to it. Um, you know, I, I what I do just process wise on a trip like that is um, I, I always have my notebook out and all day I'm just taking notes. And the worst part for me of trips like that is is at night when I get when I get back to the hotel and um, I type up all my notes from notebook onto computer because you know there's that just sort of jogs things and and writing ideas that are useful later and not doing it right then uh, I get scared that I'm gonna you know some of those notions will disappear but it's also like the last thing that you want to do when you're when you're tired from reporting is come back and and you know type 3,000 words from it from a day into your into your laptop and but that's you know also then at the end of sort of typing stuff up it, it kind of gives me a sense of what I'm still missing and what I'm, what I still need for the next day. And so you can kind of begin the next day of reporting with, you know, at least a list of notions in your notebook of some of the things that you feel like you're still, you still really want to understand. So you waited until you were done with all the reporting to go back and write it. I, I really always do. I can't think of, I don't think I've ever been out reporting a story on the road and just written a scene. Uh, I, I, I just don't see things that clearly that quickly. I when guess. you when you sit down to write it, do you know where you're going to start? One of the things that I was really um, uh, struck by rereading your stuff was uh, you got these great leads, man. All the leads are are, are thanks, man. They get at I think what we were talking about earlier, where like um, you know you're starting with these like big ideas or these big issues that you want to touch on and and drilling way down. I found that almost always you were sort of. Um, hinting at the big issue and also making it very clear that it was going to be a very sort of specific story. Right. Do you have an idea, like when you sat down to write this story, did you know where you were going to start? Um, quickly on, on what you were saying, I think that's one thing that newspaper writing is good for. Like I, I don't, I don't have 500 words to get to the point of, of what I'm doing. So, it, so it forces you to drill down relatively quickly up top, which, which can be helpful. Um, I, I, I knew, uh, you know, I came home and I, I probably spent three days going through notes and, and kind of structuring. And, and I, I definitely always, before I write, I always kind of want to know, uh, you know, my outlines aren't super detailed, but I know like what scenes are occurring in the story, where they're occurring. I definitely always want to know where a story ends. Um, because for me, if I start writing without knowing kind of the ending that I'm writing to, then sometimes it feels like I can, I can kind of get lost, uh, in between. Um, the thing I knew last in this story was where I was going to start it. Um, because, you know, some of the stuff just sort of like after that scene in the diner, y- you have to get out of town. Like the, the, you know, there's having, having the Delaware trip happen there. It sort of has to, like, you're just, you know, you need, uh, air, even if it's not really much air, it's, if it's just getting on a train and going somewhere else. Um, and I knew the ending of the piece when this neighbor comes over in the morning during this awful hour and, and, uh, Mark sort of, sort of in his head is going back through that morning. Um, and, uh, you know, really uh, so i knew that he was you know daniel was going to die in that in that last scene you can't really do that before the last scene uh and 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 it's sort of mark going through those those moments um so some of some of it came together pretty naturally the the beginning starting with this idea of the mother's day card um it i sort of had that scene i didn't really know what to do with it and then it sort of hit me that this was this was hugely emblematic of like, you know, here's another thing that they're being asked to do on a day that for them is going to be 
horrific and all they want to do is is like survive it uh they have to put together this mother's day card and also the most effective thing about the mother's day card was that it was forcing him to go through pictures of of daniel which you know those pictures allowed me to introduce a little bit of a timeline and to introduce him a little bit and it 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 ended up working really well but I, i i didn't when it was happening i didn't think like this is definitely where the story starts was it a hard story to write it was not hard in that it it came pretty quickly like i i I saw it pretty cleanly. Uh, it was hard in that it, it, it was, you know, it, I, I just, uh, I felt drained by it. Um, you know, I, I wrote it, you know, probably, I don't the story maybe is 6,000 words. And I, I, when I'm writing as, you know, I'd say I'm usually around, you know, a thousand or 1200 words a day when, when things are working okay. And, you know, in terms of words, I feel good about. So it was, you know, it was six, kind of emotionally draining days but it wasn't like some stories are where i i sat in front of an empty screen for two days and was like fuck i cannot get the first five (laughs) words of the story done uh sometimes like either writing for me will go pretty smoothly or it will be like spend like two and a half days fighting the first like scene of a story and then like you know then it moves more quickly i have this like little little like (laughs) sort of way i trick myself into convincing myself that that time is productive like i'd like to think that every story has like this predetermined amount of time that it's going to take like you know somebody knows like this story no matter what i do it's it's a six day yeah this is a six day story so like even if for the first three days i've done nothing like i've passed three of the six days (laughs) (laughs) or three of the eight days or whatever it is you know mostly it's just um writing just takes doing it like it's it's uh i care a lot about writing but i also think that there's Sometimes I, I try to guard against thinking of it too much as like circumstances have to be ideal, like how, you know, cause it's just the way you get writing done is just by, by working at it and writing. And, um, you know, some days it's, it's harder than others, but uh, I think as long as you're just kind of plugging away at it, you're, you're making progress. What was their reaction to the story when it came out? I, I was really nervous about that, which, you know, you sort of tell yourself like, you, you can't control that part. You're just writing the story as it is. Like you try to tell yourself you're, you're not going to care, but of course you do. Um, and I got a text message from Mark, uh, that morning, you know, just saying, I can probably find it in my phone. Uh, he just said, beautiful, powerful piece of work. Well done, my friend. Thank you. Uh, and then, I was super relieved. Yeah. Yeah, Super relieved. And I, you know, I just, that sort of felt like, uh, it brought the story to a close. Um, for me, uh, yeah, I just, I would have, uh, it would have torn me up if they felt like it was wrong or, or if it was, uh, it it had been sort of, it hadn't reflected things right or it had been unfair to them in any way. So they came to DC, uh, with some other Sandy Hook people after it ran for about a week, um, to do more, like to meet with more people on the hill, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't think it moved anything for them, but, uh, you know, they, they, they've been continuing to hit the ground. They went to Illinois, you know, state to state. That's just, I you know, the story had any impact. I think it definitely had an impact. Um, I, I, I think that, that, uh, you know, what they want to get done is, um, you know, to, to change in some ways the the gun laws in the country, uh, I'm not sure. Um, I'd like to think a story can have could could impact things on that big of a level. I think I think it reopened some avenues of conversation for them, and and I think it it 
it it made some some more people feel what they were going through so um i think it made some more people aware but uh i don't think obama's gonna be signing any 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 new new gun laws in the next months uh holding up a, a copy of the washington post or unfortunately daniel barden's picture um but i know that they'll keep at it was that that might have been their goal was that your goal no that wasn't my goal i mean if if you go into stories with the goal being uh what what will happen once the story runs um i think you're you're setting yourself up for disappointment every single time um, and that's that's not my job i mean my 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 job is is to write things the way they are um in a way that makes people feel them and and then to let people who know more than i do uh and you know who whose job is to do things like uh changing those those things um to to hope that this work informs them and allows them to do their jobs better um uh, you know the the one one key thing about the Newtown piece, what I didn't want it to be, was an advocacy piece. Um, I, I didn't want it to be, uh, you know, I, I wanted it to to be what it is and what they're going through. And and um, I I didn't want it. There's there's one section in the story where I'd written it originally in a way that sort of made it feel like it was my opinion that the Delaware law was really small. Um, and Finkel, the editor on the story, very smartly recognized that like that wasn't working and and the way that it would work was was to sort of make it that mark was looking through the bill and seeing how small it was and because what i think about things or what should happen to them you know it doesn't really matter it's it's small compared to to you know to to the bardens or others who've been affected by stuff um you know what i what i hope that i can do in a story is not not necessarily affect change or whatever else, but give a voice to people who are living out some of the main issues in the country, um, so that the people who who have the power to do things um, know about what's going on out there, and and you know can can use that knowledge for whatever it's worth. Well, you certainly uh, certainly did it with this one. Um, it's really it's uh, it's an incredible piece. Thanks, uh, I, I really I really appreciate you reading it. Thanks uh, for uh, hosting us in all various rooms at the Washington Post. <laughs> totally. Very glamorous. Uh, it's been great. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, you know, Bezos means the library will get bigger. Yeah, or just the building's still standing, and I am still going out and reporting stories. Right. And you, but, still, you still get to go talk to as many pool salesmen as you need to. Right, exactly. <laughs> Thanks, Eli. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lemmer. Our fantastic editor is Lauren Kirchner. Robin Jodlowski also helped out with this episode. Thanks so much to Eli Saslow for uh, taking the time. Uh, thanks also to Shawnee George, who helped us at the Washington Post set up in that fancy recording studio. Thanks to the Post in general for hosting me. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks for listening. Many more thanks. Thanks, 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 thanks. We'll be back next week. I'm a fool to do your dirty work. Oh, yeah. I don't want to do your dirty work no more. I'm a fool to do your dirty work. Oh, yeah.
Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.